I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. I'm going to play a sound, and I want you to tell me what it is. It's the sound of a galloping horse, right? Well, what if I ask you this? How do you know it's not a zebra? There's a famous phrase in medicine and epidemiology. When you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. It is essentially a medical variation of Occam's razor, the idea that the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. In practice, it looks like this. If you come into the doctor with cold symptoms, it's probably not Ebola. If your kid has a pink, itchy eye, it's probably not a flesh-eating bacteria. Generally, this principle holds up, which is why it's referenced in the pilot episode of House MD. I don't think it's a tumor. First year of medical school, if you hear hoofbeats, you think horses, not zebras. Are you in first year of medical school? No. But a show like House would never have existed if it was always that easy. Sometimes our first instincts in medicine aren't always true. Take, for example, stomach ulcers. For upset stomach, Pepto-Bismol is America's leading remedy. Here's why. No soda, Back in the good old days, we pretty much thought we had peptic ulcers figured out. They were caused by stress and bad diet. It was such common wisdom at the time, it used to be an eye-rolly TV trope. Madmen-era husbands working too hard at the office while their wives fretted over them at home. Meet George, the hard worker. His tail's a tearjerker. His hurry-worry life just dismays his poor wife. All the hustle and bustle, the workaday... Doctors responded according to conventional wisdom, prescribing bed rest, vacations, and super boring foods, and of course, a variety of antacids. Tums taste good. But then, in the late 1970s, a pair of physicians proposed an alternate theory. So, I mean, you know, as a medical school, there was this crazy doctor that said ulcers were caused by a bacteria. This is Dr. John Ockhot, director of the Johns Hopkins Lyme Disease Clinical Research Center. And he's just one of several doctors who told me the same story. I remember sitting in the lecture and the, the lecturer was saying, well, yeah, there's this kind of fringe guy that thinks ulcers are due to bacteria, but it's a bunch of hooey. And, you know, obviously they can't be due to a bacteria. Bacteria can't live in the stomach acid. You know, and our textbook at that point said that ulcers were caused by stress, you know. <laughs> the fringe guy was one of two Australian physicians. And the bacteria was something called Helicobacter pylori, which, yes, sounds like a spell from Harry Potter. But today, people in the medical world know H. pylori, as it is more commonly referred to, the same way that you and I know about E. coli. 
because those Australians, they were onto something. The, the researcher eventually got the Nobel Prize for discovering that ulcers are due to H. pylori bacteria and they're now curable with antibiotics, right? Great story, right? Kind of. The most concerning part of this tale is that the revolution in thought did not happen overnight. Thirteen years after their findings ought to have upended the field, only 5% of ulcer patients were being treated with antibiotics. 90% of patients diagnosed with ulcers were still walking away from the exam room thinking the problem stemmed from stress and diet. Today, it's well understood that H. pylori is among the most frequent causes of peptic ulcers, but tens of millions of patients fell to the wayside in the years that it took the medical community to accept, research, and validate the theory. Sometimes, the very rules that teach doctors to apply caution and avoid jumping to conclusions can keep them from catching their own mistakes. Sometimes, a zebra escapes from the zoo, and if you don't look up to see it, it'll gallop by, sounding just like a horse. I'm Taylor Quimby. Today, a bonus episode, an extra epidemiology lesson from one of my favorite interviews of this series, a story that I think tells us profound lessons about how medicine fails, succeeds, and evolves. I'm going to be sharing this story with you and with my producer, Sam Evans-Brown, host of the podcast Outside In, and we'll see what, if anything, we can apply to our investigation into Lyme disease. So how how have you enjoyed the podcast thus far? Uh, I it has been revelatory. There have been a lot of eye opening moments. Now I can no longer talk to regular humans about Lyme disease without it going way into the weeds. It devolves, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, plus, you know so much more Latin. <laughs> Dear listener, <laughs> you can thank me right now for all of the Latin words that I have cut out of the script that Taylor has tried to sneak in. I'm keep, I'm always fighting for them. I and I am always cutting them. <laughs> okay, Sam. I want to reintroduce you to Dr. Yvette Cozier. We heard from her in the first episode talking about sarcoidosis. But in reality, she helped me understand so much about disease and science and certainty. Um, she told me that we always have to keep one thing in mind. Keep in mind and keep the humility of we don't know everything, you know. Um, and what we do know um, can be narrowly defined. Perhaps what we do know is uh, could be truth within one part of the population, but not the entire population. This is pretty basic, right? Pe- people who live farther from hospitals have worse health outcomes. Yeah. Um, people who don't have a lot of money tend to have higher risk of diabetes. I guess, yeah. And, and assuming populations like that will have the same degree of health risk as the entire populace can get you into trouble. So no surprises there, right? Nothing yet. Okay. So here's the story I wanted to share. In 1980, a team of investigators from Harvard Medical and Brigham and Women's Hospital launched a first-of-its-kind trial composed entirely of licensed physicians. Why? I should say it is terribly hard for a physician to become lost to follow-up, which is basically when study subjects ghost the study investigators. You know, This is a population that 
uh, would be likely to be compliant, to buy in. Uh, it's a group that you can track pretty easily. So the Physician's Health Study becomes the first randomized trial of this size to be conducted entirely through mail. And a total of 22,071 doctors from around the country volunteered to test the efficacy of a simple, cheap intervention that could save countless lives. The trial was taking basically a baby aspirin a day or half an adult aspirin per day if that decreased risk of first heart attack. Oh, I've heard about this on the commercials. Yeah, and, and, and I wouldn't be surprised, like, if you've ever noticed your parents or somebody else who might take an aspirin every, every day. Better living through chemistry. The basis is that aspirin is a blood thinner. Um, investigators are trying to figure out if this small daily dose prevents blood clots in coronary arteries and, you know, has minimal side effects. It was slated to be a five-year study, but they ended up ending it early when they saw that there was a significant benefit. There was something like a almost a 50% decrease risk of first heart attack. They were, you know, required uh, ethically to end the study. At this point, did we play the foreboding music? What do you mean? That's a great result. 50%? That's huge. (laughs) So they end the study. They put out the results. It is, you know, kind of like a miracle. Wow, we can prevent heart disease in lots of people. From here, doctors and major medical organizations start recommending that adults over 40 take a daily dose of aspirin. When we look back on this experiment, now that we're a slightly more enlightened society, there's a hole with this experimental design that you could drive a truck through. Believe it or not, it seems like uh, not that long ago, but um, they would not have been able to randomize sufficient number of women physicians into um, the uh, study groups in order to have a meaningful um, uh, analysis. Ah, uh, yes, this is... Do, do you see what she said there? Yeah, so this is this persistent problem in studies of medical interventions, that they're not, they're not studying women enough. I mean, is she saying that they, they literally studied no women or there weren't enough women in the sample? <laughs> no, literally, they studied no women. <laughs> the physician's health study was conducted only using male doctors because there were not enough women doctors at the time to, to make it you know, worth their while. Or at least they thought there weren't enough. Yeah. Uh, many studies uh, were based entirely on men, and the results extrapolated to women. And, and of course, years later, they did a similar study uh, called the Nurses Health Study using nurses, and the results about taking aspirin every day were not nearly as conclusive. They did not find the exact same benefit. Yeah, so that uh, points to a, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a serious uh, disparity problem institutionally um, yes. in medicine. Yes, absolutely. Well, okay, so taking an aspirin a day doesn't have the same benefit for women, but but can it hurt? Yeah, so literally in, it increases the risk that you have, for example, bleeding in the brain. Mm. That's not good. No. And it just goes to show you that, I mean, this is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to all the different ways in which men and women or people of color uh, versus people of non-color. White, white people. people. <laughs> <laughs> it's a color. Right, right. Um, but, you know, all these all these disparities between different groups and you're trying to, like, figure out what is what is socioeconomic, what is this, and, like, what is the physical difference between different bodies and different people. Um, it's just a lot. Yeah. As I said, we were playing the foreboding music because you're leading me down a path towards just questioning 
all knowledge, period. <laughs> we know nothing. You know, I, I think that we don't want to systematically dismantle everything we've ever learned. But, <laughs> but I wonder, knowing how complicated this is, how might we apply some of the lessons that we're talking about here to something like Lyme disease? Mm. W- what ways should we be critical of our understanding of Lyme in, in areas that we may just not have thought about? Well, I mean... First thing that leaps to mind is obviously that the diagnostic tools that were available in the early days of Lyme were flawed, right? right. So they're relying on bullseye rashes, and not everybody gets a bullseye rash. Right. Uh, and so you wind up with a whole population of patients who may have an infection but aren't getting studied. Right. But what about how the bullseye rash might look differently to people with darker skin? Right. So there was this study that was done, and it's like the one study that sort of tackles this, and it showed that people with darker skin color were more likely to be misdiagnosed when they presented with a bullseye rash. Now, if you go to the CDC website, it shows you a range of different presentations of the rash because it doesn't always look the same. It can be a little wobbly, a little oblong, maybe not quite as bullseye-ish, but all the pictures are of white people. Like, (laughs) all the rashes uh, are of white skin. So anyway, it's pretty likely that, proportionally speaking, more people of color who are infected with the Lyme pathogen are not being diagnosed. And so, so it might be that they are developing lasting symptoms because the infection will go longer before it gets treated or, or gets treated at all. Correct. So, so in terms of uh, who gets Lyme disease, what is, how, what's the breakdown in terms of uh, men and women? So uh, with Lyme disease, the rates between men and women are close to 50-50. But when we're talking about chronic Lyme disease, which is not tracked in the same way, so this would be more like self-reported diagnoses of chronic Lyme disease, the rates of women with it seem to be higher. And, you know, that has been used to say, well, hold on, there's something wrong with this chronic Lyme disease diagnosis, like these people probably have something else. Um, But you have to entertain the possibility that Lyme disease also affects men and women differently and that they get different symptoms that maybe are harder to diagnose. Like that is a possibility. Yeah. I mean, because like why why should it affect men and women the same? Right. I mean, didn't we just talk about how genders may have different physiology? And right. And even if there is no physiological difference, it, the way the medical system treats men and women might be different enough that you it could lead to a higher rate of incidence of certain symptoms. Right. Right. And I just think that the, the argument that like, oh, that means that they've, they must have something else. Um, you know, it, it's it's born on the assumption that Lyme disease affects men and women in exactly the same ways. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we have different body parts. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, that is a, that is a truth. It also, it, this is also, I encountered this a lot in my reporting about the limits of science. There are topics that receive a huge amount of attention and study and have hundreds and hundreds of studies dedicated to them. And each of those studies is answering a very small, tightly bracketed question. Right. But in their aggregate, they're, they're a lot of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And then there are these other topics uh, in which there just isn't that body of, of literature. But people talk about sci- the science surrounding the subjects in the same way that it's like, well, science says. Right. The studies have shown. But when you look at what the studies can actually tell you, each individual study, it's a very, very small, precise statement. Right. And uh, and if like something hasn't gotten a ton of attention, you really can't say much based on science. Yeah. And I think you can see how over time, you know, what we are doing is narrowing our uncertainty. You know, like 
there's there's so much uncertainty in the world. The best we can do is keep shaving off a little bit at a time. So uh, the aspirin study, since it was published, you know, our understanding of coronary heart disease has grown enormously. And now new evidence suggests that even for healthy men with a low risk of heart attack, that daily dose of aspirin is is actually not worth it. There are more costs than there are benefits. And specifically, this one that I mentioned, increased risk of bleeding in the skull. And so in 2019, just this year, two major health organizations on this issue changed their guidelines and said daily low-dose aspirin should only be taken if directed by a doctor. You could look at this and be like, oh, we were wrong. Hmm. That's not the case. You know, aspirin is a powerful way to prevent heart attacks. But back then, we couldn't figure out what was driving that 50% drop. We couldn't see that it was all just coming from this one high-risk group. Now we know more, and we can narrow down who actually needs this medicine and who doesn't. Yeah. And I think the other lesson about this is how long will it take for us to actually internalize this information and change our practices. My dad is a doctor, and he is still taking a daily dose of aspirin. (gasps) (laughs) I've met your dad. He's like a very trim, slender, healthy-looking guy. (laughs) Yeah, he can deadlift like a bazillion pounds. (laughs) He's super fit. He doesn't need it. Patient Zero is produced and reported by me, Taylor Quimby. Sam Evans-Brown is Patient Zero's senior producer. Erica Janik is executive producer. Graphics by Sarah Plord. Maureen McMurray is director of content. If you've got questions, concerns, or comments about Patient Zero, we want to hear from you. Email us at patientzero at nhpr.org. Patient Zero's theme was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Patient Zero is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipt. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipt. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipt.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.